0: You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever and whenever you're joining us. As always, we want to say thank you so much. Welcome. We appreciate you. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Refuge. Refuge is a new church plant in southeast Austin, serving Austin at large. We exist to make disciples that shape our communities with the love of Jesus. We believe Jesus, His life, his message, his love, brings very real change to people's lives. And those changed people bring very real change to our communities. And so whether you are a regular here with us in worship or whether this is your first time, we want to encourage you, uh, click that Connect link in the video description. We'd love to share more about who we are, uh, what we do, our vision for your life and for Austin. Uh, And and yeah, to learn more about the hope, the the change we hope comes to uh, Austin. And so we're looking forward to hearing from you. But right now, you know what time it is. We're about to dive into the scriptures. And that's always, it's my favorite time of the week, whether I'm talking or whether I'm not, to be honest. Um, And so, yeah, uh, we're going to be continuing our sermon series, Seize the Moment, where we're talking about healthy rhythms in our lives. And I know you're like, how can I do that? Come on, man, global pandemic. And that's actually, those circumstances are precisely why we can do it. To be honest, like COVID-19 has stripped our lives down to the most fundamental parts of it. Yet, those fundamental are really the foundation everything else should be built on, because those are the areas the message of Jesus, the gospel, impacts first. This season gives us a great opportunity to take inventory of those fundamental areas, implementing healthy rhythms that are going to serve us far past the pandemic. And so today, we're thinking through another layer of our lives, uh, the layer of devotion, but specifically, we are uh, working through what devotion in the single life looks like. Now, I got my legs ready, and I got in like, in in the stance here, because I'm begging my my married people to just stick with me here. All right, today's sermon. Uh, although emphasizing the single life, is really going to tackle the idea of devotion and contentment. something that all of us struggle with no matter who we are. Here's the thing, though. I want to intentionally use the language of singleness here today, okay, because this idea of being single, okay, for the majority of us, you're either one or two cats. You either think about it a lot or you don't think about it at all, all right, okay, meaning if you're married, the reality of your marriage, your status as a married person, probably isn't something you're thinking about all Day every day, that's probably unfortunate. I mean, but regardless, I don't know many people that are married that walk around like, Hey, did you know I'm married? Yeah, I can't stop thinking about it, it's great, right? I just, you never see that happen. You got some newlyweds out there, but like, give it a couple years, and the reality is, most people wind up on the other side where they actually got the whole like ball and chain effect going, and it's ungodly, okay? Nonetheless, though, that's a whole other sermon we have to talk about another day, but. On the other side, for many single people, the idea of our relationship status is something that we think about a lot. Okay, many people would even define or associate the idea of being alone with the idea of being single. And as a result, uh, many people begin to perpetually kind of search for the one, that person, specific person we believe we're meant to be with, that is actually going to be a cure for our aloneness. Okay, I, I found this idea captured really well in an article from Desiring God. That's John Piper, pastor, theologian, his ministry website. And it's written by a man named Greg Morris, a staff writer at Desiring God. And he said it like this. You're quite wrong, I corrected my friend. I do believe in purgatory. It's called Christian singleness. If I thought I meant it merely in jest, the nervous laugh that followed gave me away. I did think singleness was kind of purgatory. In my experience, most who were there didn't choose to be. If you were there, you prayed to leave soon, and Christians who had escaped constantly reminded you that it's ultimately for your good. So, I lived the next few years searching for her. I lived to find her. The faceless she was the prize, the treasure hidden in the field. The alpha, my heart's alpha and omega. Mm. Okay, this this condition of the heart. All right, I. I, If I'm being honest, a huge role, um, uh, a huge role in this has to do with the culture of our churches today. Okay, um, we emphasize the earthly way of looking at family in a way that would have probably drawn the scorn of Jesus rather than his pleasure. Okay, um, we limit family, our family, the, the general idea of family, to what husband, wives, and children looks like. When, when in Scripture, in the New Testament, this idea of family most often speaks about a people, a people from all different walks of life and all different experiences in life being brought together to form a family in Christ. And when we make this this, This horrible, we make this horrible combination, right? We start using family to just kind of communicate one thing. Two things happen. One, we end up ignoring our brothers and sisters who are single. And two, we cast vision for family that's exclusive to marriage, both of which are completely and wholly wrong. And so today I want to speak to singles directly, okay, because single people have a voice in our church. Single person, single brother, single sister, you're not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. It's not like you're waiting for marriage and that's when you become a first-class citizen. You are a first-class citizen right now. You have a voice with us. We need you, okay? And at the same time, I also don't want to speak to singles alone, I likewise want to speak to, to any and everyone, okay, who's listening. Because our main goal in this life is not to be the best single person we can be or the best married person we can be. Our goal is to follow Jesus. Our goal is to follow Jesus And if that's confusing, I understand. Because what we're really doing is taking like this primary way that we identify our lives and putting it into a second place position. And it's probably a little confusing for a lot of us, but but don't fear. That's why what I want to do is go ahead and dive into Scripture and see what it says about the whole thing. Okay? And and what we're going to see is that like most of the things we talk about in this series, none of them have to do just with what we do. Okay? They all have to do with where our heart's at. And, And from where our heart is really blossoms this life that, that is only true when we place our faith and hope and trust in Jesus. And so I want to go ahead and dive in to talk about singleness, to talk about really devotion and contentment here today. And we're going to come at it from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, we're going to go ahead and start with verses 32 through 35. And they read like this. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. So that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world. How she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Okay, now... Uh, to understand today what's happening in this text, really, we first have to understand a bit of what's happening around this text. And, and what I mean by that is, is both what's happening in the actual book of 1 Corinthians before this moment and what's happening in the life of the Corinthian church way back there, like in history, right? So let's go ahead and start there. The, the letter of the 1 Corinthians was actually written to the church in a city called Corinth. Now, this Corinth is actually a new version of an old city. The former Corinth was one of the wealthiest and richest cities in the ancient world. Uh, It would have rivaled other Greek cities like Athens or Thebes. In addition, it was one of the primary places of worship for Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of beauty, uh, relationships, sex, uh, love, all that stuff. But in 146 BC, uh, that city was destroyed by the Romans. Okay, like completely destroyed. Just desolated I mean it was it was bad, but about a hundred years later, under the rule of Julius Caesar, the city was rebuilt rebuilt primarily for economic and cultural reasons and Although it wasn't as as sexually charged as it had been in the past, Corinth was still a highly sexualized city where people took advantage of all the new money they had made, and and people really had come here and they rebuilt this economy, poor people become rich, and people now took advantage of all that new money they had made um, in all the ways you can imagine but probably should not imagine. Okay, Uh, (laughs) and it's in this context that Paul visited and started the church in Corinth. Okay, Uh, and you can read about that in Acts 18, but at first it went great. But shortly after Paul left, he got disheartening news that that the church was not doing well spiritually. I'm going to try to summarize this, but they had split into factions based on their favorite preacher they had invited and accepted the teachings of false prophets they were suing each other in the city court most had turned their back on paul some people were legalistic while others were doing whatever the heck they wanted to do it was bad y'all it was real bad and that's why there's actually so many things addressed in first corinthians it's like a pastor's handbook except for as we pick and choose paul was writing a letter to address all these things happening at one time in one church it's wild Okay, and so after dealing with all these different issues, in chapter 7, we finally arrive at the place where Paul begins to discuss marriage, and the reason he's discussing it, discussing it is because he, it was in response to a question that had been raised by some of the members of the church about marriage and sex specifically, Now, possibly in response to both what they saw other church members doing and just the, the, the context they lived in, this overly sexualized city. And after speaking about marriage, Paul dives into unmarried and widows starting in verse 25. Again, this unmarried portion. And this is where it starts getting a little bit confusing as we head into the text that we read today. This is where it starts, but but we got to just check it out. Okay, in verse 25. It says, "Now about virgins." Another way to read that is betrothed women. Okay, that's probably a more simple way of saying that. I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one by the Lord's mer- who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Because of the present distress, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life and I am trying to spare you. Okay, if you're anything like me and you read this, you're like, what the heck is going on here, right? It's, It's hard to understand primarily because it feels a little muddy. It feels like Paul's giving almost diplomatic answers, playing both sides of the argument. And there's actually a good reason for this, okay? Uh, As I mentioned, in Corinth, they were living in an overly sexualized culture. And as a result, many scholars believe that some of the people coming to faith in Corinth were realizing what was happening and what more than likely they had also participated in at one point, and they were really reacting like any of us would, just going the complete opposite direction. They were just getting out of Dodge, right? They were running the opposite way. Meaning some of the believers in, in the Corinthian church possibly believe that no one should have sex at all. Single, married, man, woman, doesn't matter. There should just be no sex, okay? Let's all just get away from that thing that's caused us so much pain, and that's really why Paul's, what Paul's addressing in chapter 7. In fact, in the first few verses, he's addressing married people, telling them you should have sex, Okay, If you're trying to respond to a culture that has over-sexualized stuff, the the absolute wrong way to response is to recoil back and go, there's no sex whatsoever, but rather to show the beauty and goodness of sexual culture who's distorted it so dramatically. And so he's really working through those first few verses in chapter 7 to married people. But here in verse 25, He begins speaking to the single people in that group, okay, who are now saying they're just not getting married and they shouldn't get married. They should stay single. And the reason it seems like there's this double-sided answer from Paul is because Paul affirms, okay, uh, that it's good for people that aren't married to be celibate, to not have sex, but he isn't in favor of celibacy and singleness for the sake of depriving ourselves of joy. Okay, he's walking this tightrope, helping them see that their actions are fine, but the heart behind their actions is wrong. Sex isn't an evil thing. Okay, God's good gifts from God aren't evil things. When we begin to treat them as evil things, we begin to lose sight of the good gift that God is giving us, and ultimately, we lose sight of the goodness of that gift's giver. Okay, think about it. How many people growing up, okay, primarily in like fundamental Christian households are told to avoid and that things are bad, they should avoid specific things, specifically talking about sex and alcohol, okay? And how often do those very same people at some point, not all, but a lot end up running back to those very same things, oftentimes in excess? Why? 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 Because when we label a good gift a bad thing, we inevitably see the giver of those good gifts as not good or at least not good enough. Okay, we lose sight of the goodness of the giver of the gifts and we start to pursue other things to bring us life that only really the giver of the gifts should give. And hear me, this is actually exactly where singleness fits in, because for many of us, under the influence of of both the the worldly culture and even, unfortunately, right, the church culture that tells us marriage is the thing that makes us whole, marriage is the goal, marriage is the thing that we're waiting for, we begin to see singleness as something to get away from, aka a bad gift instead of a blessing, okay? And soon after, we begin to call into question why God hasn't given us X, Y, or Z, and then his goodness eventually is called the question and before you know it we're running into relationships that we know we shouldn't be in hoping they can provide us something or alternatively we become embittered toward the idea of love and relationships in general not just romantically but we begin to even have this this sideways view of what friendship looks like and what brotherhood and sisterhood look like right and hear me i'm not just picking on single people here this happens in marriage as well Okay, like, we believe that this singleness is the place we are supposed to escape, expecting marriage to be the thing that brings us fullness until we realize that it doesn't. Then the gift of marriage is called into question. We wonder why God hasn't done what we expected him to do or expected him to give us in marriage. And so the mind gets curious, the eyes start to wonder, and then all of a sudden, a home and a marriage is broken. All the while, Paul is pointing at marriage, and he's pointing at singleness, and in all of it, he's saying, it's all fine. None of that is the most important thing. Okay? You, you use all this to define X, Y, and Z, and, and you make it so centered to everything that you're doing, but in reality, this really is not the most important thing. That's really what he means in, verse 17, in verses 17 through 20, a little bit above there in chapter 7. In verse 17, he says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter. And uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Do you see that? The circumstances, Paul is saying, aren't the life and death situation. For many of those in the Corinthian church, when they came to faith, they were questioning whether they should change this characteristic or this circumstance or that circumstance. Yet Paul is looking at them and says, don't worry about all that. Okay, because that won't bring you more or less life than your faith does now. Okay, like, like literally in the text, it, the very next verse says if you came to faith, if you came to, to, to faith as a slave and you have the opportunity to be freed, then go ahead and be freed. But know that the, the freedman is also the Lord's slave because he bought us with a price. And so literally Paul is saying if you have the opportunity to, to, to be free and you're a slave, go ahead and do it. And if you're a slave, don't, don't, don't be overly obsessed with that either, right? Like, Like if you are at work and you have the opportunity to advance, go ahead and do it but also don't be concerned about these, these moments here where you're, you're in your old job or whatever, right? What he's getting at is the circumstances that surround your life are not the most important thing. Rather, what is the most important thing? Keeping God's commands is what matters. Being deeply in love with Jesus, being his, hearing his voice, knowing his ways, following him fully, and in that, knowing that these changes in our circumstances aren't the solution nor the problem. We can't cling to these believing these are the answer to every aspect of our life because in reality, what Paul wants us to recognize is that they're not the most important thing. Being his is the most important thing. I love the way pastor and educator Sandy Wilson says it. He says, The outer circumstances that so often define our lives in our minds are not the things that define our lives. What defines our lives is whether we belong to the Lord. And if we belong to him, We own the cattle on a thousand hills alongside of him. They're ours. Do you want fullness? Okay, it's in whether you belong to Jesus or not. Okay, but but here's the thing. In the 21st century Austin context that we live in, it's easy to forget exactly what it means and how we live out that fullness that God gives us. Okay, let me pose it in a question. Hear me. What does it mean to keep God's commandments? Okay, think about that for a second. I'm just going to stop talking. And your thinking time is done. Okay, most of us probably thought of something like sexual purity. We thought about something like being kind and gentle, serving other people. Uh, in short, most of us thought about ethics, meaning what we should or shouldn't do. And those things are true. Hear me. I'm not saying they're not true. They're very true. But I want you to put yourself in the position of a first-century Christian in Corinth. Okay? Okay? Like, close your eyes with me. Just imagine, like, you're a part of a small group of believers in the middle of this major ancient city. You believe that what you have found in Jesus forgives your sins, makes you new, brings you life and redeems you, gives you new and lasting purpose, saves you for eternity and promises you lasting inheritance forever and ever. Maybe best of all, okay, there's enough to go around. There is, this is available to everyone, and in Corinth, where the rich got richer and the poor were detested, this might have been the best news of all. Yet, when you go outside and walk among the people of Corinth, there is a high likelihood that many of the people you walk by don't even know who Jesus is and have never heard of him. Which one of God's commands do you think would ring the loudest in your ear at that point? I like to think the echoes of Jesus' words, that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Man, do you see that? Do you see that this idea of, of of loneliness is even tackled when we begin to understand that it's actually in 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 being alongside Jesus as we partner with him to seek and save the lost? Right, right, like Like this idea of the most important thing is the thing that tackles loneliness, right? And I'm not saying that we never feel loneliness. What I'm saying is that, man, this is probably even what Paul means when he says in our verse today, I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. This isn't to say that the unmarried man or woman is working on patience better than the married man or woman. They're both working on patience, as an example, or, or, or anger, whatever the case is. They're just doing it in different circumstances. Rather, what Paul is pointing out is that in the unmarried person's life, there is the ability to give full, undivided devotion to the Lord. To dwell on the reality of His goodness, and in that dwelling, to begin to extend the goodness of that of that God, that grace, that mercy, and love to others who are in desperate need of it. Do you want fullness? Yes, it's found in Jesus, but how do we live that fullness out? It's in mission in coming alongside Jesus again and, and, and coming alongside of him and co-laboring with him to seek and save the lost. Marriage is not the mission. Singleness is not the mission. Children are not the mission. Jobs are not the mission. 50th anniversaries are not the mission. The mission is not the good gifts. The mission is the giver of those good gifts. Loving him, being loved by him, and inviting those that don't know him to experience that beautiful love and affection, the restoration of the gospel friends whether you're married or you're not this is not if this is not the means by which you live out the fullness of God in your life i promise you you'll probably end up feeling like something's missing because our faith is not is not built it's not only about what's being done in our lives but what God is doing on earth to bring restoration and redemption to all we're watching we get to play part in this amazing story of God redeeming and restoring everything are you looking for meaning in life? Are you looking for fullness in life? If you're a follower of Jesus, you get to play a role in the restoration of the world, starting with you being redeemed, and then from there being sent out to see others experience the same joy. It's why Christians shouldn't look at the upcoming elections and believe that's what's going to dictate the redemption or not. Right? And hear me, I think voting is an insanely important thing. Okay, I I think we should be prayerfully considering who we're voting for, prayerfully thinking through who's on the ballot and casting that vote prayerfully before God. Yet, we should also by no means uh, think that the world is going to be saved through this upcoming election. The world has a savior and he's not a Democrat or Republican. His name isn't marriage or singleness. His name is Jesus. And my single brothers and sisters, my married brothers and sisters, he knows your name he sees you he gave himself for you so that so that so that we could be made his and restored back to him can can, can like it lonely absolutely he understood the depths of our lonely heart and that's why he gave himself for us because separated from him lifeless and in need missing the actual fundamental thing that makes us human which is not someone else but rather him he gave himself for us so that we could be brought back to him we're his he that's Man, that's the cure to our loneliness. Again, can life get lonely? Absolutely. Can our hearts be lonely and hurt? Yes, I have known people that have lost children and spouses, and I cannot fathom and understand or even bring myself to really imagine the depth of a loneliness that the brokenness of this world can bring us. And that includes this idea of the brokenness of the world, as we experience it as single people yet because god knew that it would not be marriage friendships politics or anything else that was going to satisfy us, he gave himself on the cross so that we could be restored back to receiving the touch that we were created to know Jesus is the husband that we're all longing for. The spouses that we have on earth aren't meant, nor will they ever be able to give us the emotional or spiritual support and love that we so desperately need. We are are longing for the emotional and spiritual touch of our true soulmate, the true husband, Jesus. 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 And so married people, like this is, this is why we should celebrate our single brothers and sisters. Okay, not out of pity, like, oh yeah, like, oh yeah, your, your time will come. No, We should celebrate their lives, knowing that they have the ability to live out a life of pure devotion to the only thing that actually brings them fullness, right? And it's not that the the married person is not full, right? Oh man. That went way off. <laughs> it's not that the married person is not full, but rather what Paul is saying in the text is that when when we have... These devotions and these requirements, responsibilities on earth, there there is a one B type of of devotion that the spouse has to give to the other spouse. Yet in this single life, there is this ability to singularly devote our attention to the only thing that actually brings us life. That's why Paul sees singleness as a gift, because he sees it as a position that leaves more room for the greatest thing, Jesus, and making him known. Now I want to stop here, and I want to say that I know that this doesn't cure loneliness as we feel it here on earth yet it brings truth that begins to combat loneliness in the middle of our darkest moments hear me again this does not stop loneliness completely one time forever but this brings truth that begins to combat loneliness in our darkest moments okay i, I gotta close up here i'm running running a little, little bit short on time here and so friends whether you're single whether you're married or engaged or whatever I want you to see today the beauty of God and his mission for us, okay? I'm not here to give you encouragement to fight the good fight until you have an earthly spouse. That's feeding you false hope. I, 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 don't, I don't want to do that. Not false hope that there will never be a spouse, but rather false hope that that spouse is meant to do anything besides uh, give you a different opportunity to grow in the likeness of Christ. Okay, likewise, I'm not here to tell you that waiting will make you stronger and better equip you for marriage because there is no equipping for marriage. There is only being equipped to one day join in the heavenly choir of singing the praises of the only one who makes us whole. You have some do that in marriage and some do it in singleness, but the goal of both is the same. Jesus... He's the only thing that gives life to our lives in singleness or in marriage or in anything else. It's Jesus. Okay, and the only true purpose we can find in this life isn't through the circumstances that surround us, but living out the mission we've been called to in spreading the hope of the gospel to those who are in deep need of it, whether single or married in Austin or in Amsterdam. The joy of our lives is built on the right foundation we are building on what Jesus has done for us and what he's calling us to now. Okay, and so before we, before we close, though, um, because that's, that's what I hope we, we, we grasp, right, that, man, even in, in the darkest and, and hardest moments, we've actually been given the gift of Jesus that, that restores and redeems and brings life to our heart. But nonetheless, I still want to venture into some practical applications, like what does this mean for my life? Okay, I want to give you four of them, but I also want to kind of give a little bit of an asterisk to say that none of them really should change your life that much, whether you're married or whether you're not. Okay, because they're all the things that we should be doing that we're called to do, I should say, as followers of Jesus. Okay, for instance, one could be making time for community. Right, like, how do we make the most and develop healthy rhythms in the context of our single life? We can make time for community. Okay, make time for building up the body of Jesus on a personal level. I, I long to spend increasingly more time with my brothers and sisters in the faith to give and receive spiritual food, be edified by seeing Jesus uh, in 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 my brothers and sisters, a part of Jesus that I oftentimes don't see with just me or even just with my wife or whatever the case is. Uh, on on and although i love my children you guys all know that i love my children i'm also looking forward to the days when they're able to venture off and kind of do things on their own so that i can really have more time to spend time with the community of faith without taking time away from my family or wife now then that's like exactly what paul's talking about right um but how can we do this how how, how do we make time for community well uh, invite others into like, all the things that you're doing in your life, right? Like, uh, are you comfortable with being indoors with people? Then invite them over to watch TV, to just drink coffee and hang out, sit there and stare at each other, <laughs> right? Like, uh, not uh go grocery shopping with each other. I love going grocery shopping with people, especially when they buy me something, right? It's amazing. Um, if you're not comfortable going outside during this time, global pandemic, that's understandable. Go for a walk. Hang out outside. Community doesn't start and stop with a Bible study, nor is it built around some type of social event that we go to. It involves any moment you decide that relationships would be beneficial to what you're doing, which is almost like everything, right? And so, can you talk about God? I hope you do. But likewise, it's not the moments and the events where we talk about God and community is an addendum to that thing or a result of that thing. Rather, it's community, the context of relationships that then give us space to talk about God where we're edified and where we help each other grow, right? And so uh, another area, another practical is just devotion. Devotion and worship. One of the biggest ways we get to experience God's goodness and remember his love in our own lives is really through our devotional time with the Lord, spending time in scripture, spending time actually singing to the Lord. These are the moments that, that really start to kindle our hearts. If you're single, find a time to incorporate those. If you're married, that may be a little bit difficult, Right, It may be a little bit hard. You may have to get up a little bit later, uh, get up a little bit earlier, go to sleep a little bit later, things that my wife hates, both of them. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but it may require you getting crafty, making some sacrifices, but this is a great way to realign our eyes to the beauty of God and what he's called us to. Okay? Uh, have, third, have people that you are praying for okay uh, meaning seek out those that are on the outside of our faith and spend time with them okay pray for those individuals regularly uh, seek them out as people that you may be able to, to hang out with this act of mission is I think one of the greatest testimonies of the truth of the gospel to our hearts when we are able to not just testify to other people that that God is good but we likewise in that moment remind ourselves that the fullness of what we need and the fullness of what we're desiring is in what we are already have in Jesus. Okay, so this is a, a, a powerful one. Have people that you're praying for. Be on mission. And this really, I think, kind of lends itself to this, this fourth one, which is the only one that is not applicable to married people, because it's let this, this idea of devotion and contentment and mission be a guide for who you're dating. Okay, if you're married, you need to be on dating your spouse. But right, if you're single, if you want to date somebody, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. But if you do, If you do date someone, let this this mission be the thing that guides who you're dating. Meaning, um, it's great if someone loves church. It is great if someone loves listening to sermon podcasts on their way home. It is great if someone loves going to Bible study and to small group and all that good stuff. Yet, it's really... It's special when two people join their lives together for the sake of advancing the mission of seeking and saving the lost, seeing those who desperately need Jesus come to find him. And to be honest, it also also empowers your marriage, right? Like when me and Rachel went on our first date, uh, she can testify to you. She can tell you that I said I wanted to plant a church. And uh, she says, you know, maybe she didn't mean it. Sometimes now she's like, I don't remember that. But uh, when I said it, she was like, oh, that's cool. And in my heart, I knew that she probably really didn't mean that that was cool because she was making disciples herself, right? Like like she was leading small groups. She was like leading a Bible study at her job. There were like, these were the things that she was doing that I knew aligned directly with the mission I had of seeing people come to faith. And so all these years later, when we have planted a church and gone through the ups and downs of planting a church, living out that calling, it has been a blessing in my life to lean on my wife and to have her not go, this isn't worth it, but rather to go, this is worth it. This is worth it for the sake of the mission that we're going on, the mission that we're on and the destination we have of glory. Right. That has been a huge blessing in my life, and in your own life. Maybe it's not um, the lead pastor of our church plant, but maybe it's evangelism. Having uh, someone with you, whether, again, you're, you're, you're single or married, if, that's your, if, if you're dating someone, to have that idea of how can this person not just accept my, my mission, but rather, man, even empower it, right? So let it be a guide to those uh, of you that are, that are desiring to date someone. Let it be a guide for who you're dating. These things aren't replacements for a spouse or marriage. Uh, There's something so much better than that. They're the calling of our God, whether we're married or whether we're not, okay? And he is the focal point, and exalting his name is the mission. Okay, to close, I want to actually offer another quote from Greg Morris. He's the writer of that Desiring God article uh, that we mentioned a little bit earlier. In his conclusion, he offers a great tidbit of insight and truth that I pray encourages you as we finish. He says, Singles, God sees your pain. He knows your loneliness. He has felt a loneliness that you cannot imagine. He knows your needs before you can even ask him. He knows the current number of hairs on your head and tenderly bids you to draw near and cast all your burdens upon his fatherly shoulders. God cares about your lonely soul, but there are dragons to slay, souls to win, and darkness to fight. In ourselves and in the world, Although God cares about our lonely soul, we strive towards a larger goal. Rediscover the beauty and urgency of the Christian mission over and above marriage. The time for fairy tale endings and Prince Charming's is not yet. Do not forsake that childlike anticipation for matrimony because married or unmarried, none of us has yet experienced the wedding to which all matrimony. Go ahead and pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that clues us in to the most important and critical things in our lives. And even though all of us, no matter who we are, whether we're single, whether we're married, no matter what the the, the phase of life we're in, all of us have the propensity, have the habit of trying to define our lives above and beyond what you have, yet your word does us the the, the good work of drawing us back to focusing our eyes on the true goodness of your life on the cross, exchange for ours, to bring us back to be yours, to to give us the thing that we have been missing since we were born. That is the touch of your love as our Heavenly Father. Thank you for a gospel message that brings us back to you. I ask that that this truth would be encouraging to our hearts today. For those that are single and for those that are married, for those that are married and feeling the weight of of marriage troubles, as Paul calls them, let the truth of this satisfying work of the gospel be the thing that encourages our heart. I love you, I thank you, and I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Love y'all. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.